The sermon text this morning will be from the book of Philemon, (coughs) verses 17 through 25. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. C.S. Lewis once said that uh, everyone thinks forgiveness is a, a lovely idea until you have someone to forgive, and then it doesn't become so lovely. You know, even those who are very young know that it is very difficult to both grant forgiveness and also seek reconciliation. It's it's hard. I mean, you get off kilter. Carol and I this morning, I I don't know what happened. We just got out of bed the wrong way and and things started out. And I finally said, we just got to pray. I mean, I'm going to preach on reconciliation. And here we are trying to get at odds with one another. It's just, it's just life in this world. The alternative to not seek reconciliation and to not seek forgiveness uh, is, is a poor option. I mean, you're left with superficial relationships. You're left with nurturing anger. You're left with defensiveness. You're left with kind of a, a grumbling spirit. Well, thankfully, we have help in this letter uh, from Paul to Philemon. We have help with learning how to forgive and how to forgive in a way that leads to reconciliation. Now, you know, if you've been here the past few weeks, you know the storyline, but let me repeat it to you. You know, Paul the Apostle is writing to Philemon. Philemon is a friend. He's a brother in the Lord. He's a leader in the church. He has a slave, Onesimus. And Nesimus has run away and presumably stolen something, taken something. So he's both a fugitive and a thief. Well, by God's good providence, he runs into Paul. He may have been looking for Paul, we discussed over the past few weeks, but he he found Paul, he heard the gospel, and he was converted soundly. Well, when conversion takes place, we know that reconciliation must follow. And And so Paul is writing a letter to Philemon, his friend, to reconcile with Onesimus, his slave. And Onesimus is going to actually carry the letter. Now, there's other letters that have been written as well. The prison letters while Paul was in Rome, the letter to the church at Philippi and Ephesus and Colossae, all those letters were carried with Onesimus and Tychicus, another church leader, from Rome to these various churches in Asia Minor. But, But this one is unique. This is a personal letter. You know, Onesimus is actually carrying this letter of reconciliation to the one that he has sinned against. 
And Paul's desire, and I think Onesimus' desire, is that they would be reconciled. Even though he had sinned against him, that they would be, he'd be forgiven and reconciled. Now, many Christians here are very bold to proclaim the power of the gospel to reconcile God and sinful man. We feel very certain about that. We're trusting in that. We're excited about that. And yet in practice, oftentimes, the power of the gospel doesn't seem so strong to reconcile saint to saint. And that's the purpose of this letter. It isn't speaking directly about the saving work of God in Christ to us. That's really undergirding the whole thing. But it's really that the saints would reconcile with one another. It's a very important message for us. Not just around the holidays, although it seems to spike at this point in time, but it's really a good message for us all the time. So, so to try to to try to finish this letter out, I just want to look at four aspects of forgiveness. Four aspects of forgiveness. We've looked at the foundations of forgiveness. What does it take to be a person who forgives? That was in the first seven verses. And we looked at Paul appealing for forgiveness in the body of the letter from 8 to 16. That is kind of strategies, if you will, how Paul was seeking for Philemon to forgive. But now we're just going to look at these four aspects. And, and I, I really... Um, uh, I, I know that when you're thinking about the conflict within your own life, I know that there are nuances and challenges and difficulties that I may not touch on. Uh, this is more of a template, but, but I trust that you would be able to use it to advance whatever conflict you may have in your life. You can use this as a template to advance that towards greater reconciliation. And if there are nuances... And there are unique difficulties to the conflict that you're facing, then an elder or leader in this church would love to speak with you further about it, to try to take this truth and then to make more specific application to your own life. But for us today, we'll look at the four aspects of forgiveness. And you see the first one right out of the gate in verse 17, that forgiveness, gospel forgiveness that is, results in reconciled relationships. There's a lot of counterfeits out there. You know, like I said last week to John F. Kennedy, hey, forgive your enemies, but don't forget their names. That, that's a counterfeit forgiveness. A, a true gospel forgiveness results in reconciliation, restored relationships. You see it in 17 when Paul says, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. So remember, Paul and and Philemon are partners in the gospel, of course. If you consider me a partner, welcome Onesimus as you would me. Uh, welcome him, not as a slave, as he was, but as a brother. But notice what he says, if you consider me a partner. When we think of partner, we think of business partner, perhaps, or even partnership in marriage or in parenting. And, and that has some truth to it. A partnership is something you hold in common. But what Paul's saying here is his partnership is in the gospel, that they hold the reconciliation of God in common. They both need forgiveness. They both need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They both need the promises of God. They both need the provision of God. So they're holding in common this faith. And, and Paul's saying, if you consider me that partner, if you consider... he's not doubting Philemon's faith. I don't think Philemon would doubt Paul's faith. You can use the word since in replacement of if. Since we're partners, then welcome him as you welcome me. In other words, receive him. Give him a glad welcome. Treat him, love him, respect him, just like you would me, Paul is saying. I mean, this is incredible. Treat him as a brother, he's saying. Uh, this would be a 
As I mentioned last week, Paul in his letter doesn't directly condemn slavery. But if this isn't a devastating seed to the institution of slavery, I don't know what would be. I mean, to consider him a brother, it means that Philemon and Onesimus have their mutual union in Christ. They share the fatherhood of God, that God is their father. They're both filled with the Spirit. To not see how this just transcends, no longer would you have master and slave. Those terms become transcendent by faith in Christ. They become devastated. I mean, they're irrelevant. We're brothers now. Slavery can't exist within a brotherhood. They're now friends. You know, many of you know the story about Abraham Lincoln at the end of the Civil War. Thaddeus Stevens was a was an abolitionist in the North, and and they had words often. and And Thaddeus Stevens wanted Lincoln to to finally destroy the armies of the South once the war was over, to finish them off. And Abraham Lincoln said those famous words. He says this, he says, Do I not destroy my enemy by making him my friend? In other words, that's what's happening here. There's no enemy now. There's no animosity. There's no antagonism. There is friendship between these two. And this is the nature of the gospel. So if you're here today and you, and you wonder about all this talk about the gospel, what's the gospel? What do Christians mean when they say the gospel? Well, the gospel is simply the good news that God in mercy has given us a son who would bear our sins that we might be reconciled and restored to him. <clears throat> that Jesus Christ himself would bear the load of our sins, and suffer God's righteous wrath that we might be justified before God, forgiven of our sins. And I think this is what Paul's driving after. He's speaking to Philemon about the nature of the reconciliation that takes place in Christ. And he's saying here, if you follow the logic, he says, receive him as you receive me. He's kind of drawing a parallel He's saying, in a way, Philemon, you're in the place of God here for a minute. Be reconciled to Onesimus by me. Receive him as you receive me. See, for the Christian, we can appeal to God and approach God now in Christ. So when God sees us, he doesn't see you as a litany of sin throughout your life. He sees you in Christ, in the beloved. You're accepted in Christ. That's why tomorrow he won't love you more. Yesterday, he didn't love you less. Because for the Christian, you're in Christ. And so when he sees you, he sees Christ. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that hopeful? That you don't have to climb some spiritual ladder to get to a certain rung where God can say, okay, come on in. You don't need that. In Christ, you're accepted. And what Paul's saying to Philemon is now that he is in Christ, accept him as you would accept me. Just like God, by the way, has accepted you. That's a great freeing thing. This is what makes the Christian forgiveness different from the failed attempts at reconciliation in the world. If you're a non-Christian here, how do you forgive? How do you forgive knowing that the other person may yet continue to sin against you? what, What basis do you have to grant the forgiveness? without defenses coming right back up, that they'll sin against you again in the same way. 
Now, if you're a Christian here, though, uh, consider for a moment the last person that you had conflict with. Did you reconcile with them? Did you restore the relationship with them? Have you received them? You know, there's a sad irony in the church today that oftentimes we are bold to pronounce the forgiveness of God that we have through Christ. But this same forgiveness isn't always given in like measure to those that have sinned against us. And do you not agree that there's a subtle denial of the gospel if we don't walk in that forgiveness? I mean, how can we as a Christian hold on to grudges and hold on to the hope of the gospel? Can you hang on to both? Aren't they kind of contrary to one another? It's not just bad witness for the world. Here's the problem for the Christian. I think if we don't walk in forgiveness, then we erode our own faith in the power of the gospel to save us. Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, well, I just can't forgive because I don't, I don't, I don't have emotions. I, I don't have the feelings that I need to have to forgive. And I want to wait until I have those feelings so that I can do it legitimately. Well, let me remind you, and, and this may be a challenge to you, and I want it to be a gentle challenge, uh, but the scriptures never say that obedience is tethered to feelings. The scriptures never say that once you have feelings, then you obey. The idea is that you obey because of his worth and value and worthiness. C.S. Lewis also has <clears throat> some instruction for us in this as well. He says, spiritual feelings are fickle. They can come and they can go. As we follow Jesus in obedience, doing the things we ought to do, often the feelings then follow. <clears throat> Excuse me. Many of you know the story of Corrie ten Boom. She was the Dutch woman who with her sister hid uh, Jews in her home uh, during the Nazi occupation. Eventually they were caught. They were thrown into Ravensbrück concentration camp where, where Corey ten Boom lost her sister. You can imagine the grief and the sadness over that. And uh, she, they, they were, the family, they were Christian. They walked out their Christian principles. That's what caused them to risk themselves to take these Jews and hide them in their home. And so they were caught in Ravensbrück, sent to Ravensbrück. The sister died. So a few years later, in 1947, she's preaching speaking about her experience in Munich, Germany. And she was speaking about the nature of God's forgiveness, that he forgives. He, he throws them into the depths of the ocean where they will no longer be held against you. And she was speaking to God's great forgiveness. Well, after the service, a, a man came forward to her, a man that was strangely uh, familiar to her. And as he approached, he realized that he was one of the guards in that prison. She remembered, as she gives word to it, the crop that was still on his belt that he would uh, whip and harm people with uh, as the cruel guard that he was. And he comes up to her and he says these words. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He says, I was a guard there. He says, but since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but... I would like to hear it from you, from your lips as well, Fraulein. He put out his hand and said, will you forgive me? Well, she says, I stood there still with coldness clutching my heart. 
She said, but forgiveness is not an emotion. She goes, it's an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of my heart. So she prayed, help. That I can lift my hand. You have to supply the feeling, she says. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started, my shoulder raced down, my arm sprang into our joined hands, and then with healing warmth, seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, she cried with my whole heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, She says, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. It was in the obedience that the feelings followed. It was the willingness to walk in forgiveness to those who had sinned against. Then the feelings came. It's an important lesson for us. Important lesson. If we wait for the feelings... And oftentimes you're going to be waiting a long time. You walk in obedience, and God will bring all that you need as you walk in obedience. So th- this is an important word for us, that forgiveness results in reconciled relationships, even relationships challenged like this. This is a good word for the church, too. Uh, the church itself, we must look strange when we do this, don't we? I mean, when we reconcile and restore the relationships with those who have injured us, must we not look strange? I mean, Philemon had to look, his household had to look silly. I mean, for him to take back a slave and not only receive him without punishment, but to forgive him and then to consider him a brother, what would all the other community have thought? This leniency on slaves, this is a dangerous thing. I mean, can you imagine in 1850 someone doing that? I mean, but what it does is it draws attention to the power of the gospel. When we are able to forgive one another, accept one another, be a place of second chances, we present an alternative to the world that the world cannot understand, but they're attracted to it. But they can't understand it. One theologian wrote these words, he says, For Paul, there is a clear line of demarcation between the world and the church. To him, the world is essentially unchanged and unchanging. In every generation, the seeds of decay and disruption are born again. And even though the Christian must live and suffer in this world, the church is to be a place of peace. Conflict and animosity will not cease until the return of Christ. But it is in the church that the peace and shalom of heaven is reflected to a world of war. The church is to be a little oasis of where an alternative way of life is made visible. That's what we're to be, an oasis where an alternative way of life is revealed, is made visible. That's what we're called to do. Incidentally, even as a Christian, in your workplace, you can mirror this. You can show and draw attention to the gospel by not counting wrongs, by extending forgiveness, by not playing the the political game in the office, not backbiting, not gossiping, uh, giving forgiveness, seeking forgiveness when you sin. You can draw attention to the gospel. You can be radically alternative to what they know to be the way of life, kind of the way of life in the jungle. Incidentally, I I think this is probably part of the reason why Paul says that the elders, a qualification to be an elder, is to have a good reputation with outsiders. I think he's trying to say they need to be at peace. 
They need to be peaceable men, seeking peace, granting forgiveness. This is really important for us. So this is the first aspect, is that a gospel forgiveness is to result in not just this cold war between people, where missiles aren't being fired at each other, but they're to be restored relationships, something to be praying for, to be seeking. But secondly, and this is a little more challenging, a gospel forgiveness calls you to embrace a cost. There's a cost involved to walk in forgiveness to one another. You notice this in verse 18. Paul is not making, he's not kind of glossing over Onesimus' sin. He recognizes that to be new, to receive new life in Christ, doesn't mean that we don't go back and fix the wrongs that we have done. And so he says there in 18, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying, we don't know what Onesimus did. We don't know the financial debt that he created. We, We don't know. But Paul's saying, whatever it is, charge it to my account. I'll repay it. I'll pick up the responsibility. In fact, you notice when he says, I, Paul, am writing this with my hand? He's really forging a legal document. He's forging a promissory note. He's forging an IOU. He's saying, this is me. I'll repay it. The entire debt load that Onesimus created has now been put to me. I will pay for his debt. I mean, don't you see a beautiful picture of the gospel there? Don't don't you see a beautiful picture of your debt load being placed upon Christ and Christ going to God and saying, I will repay. I will carry this debt. I will suffer this debt. I will pay the cost of this debt. Beautiful picture of the gospel right there. Please don't miss that. But Paul's saying, I'll repay. Now, we don't know how Paul's going to repay. We know in the Philippian letter, he says, I've known much and I've known less. He goes, but my God will supply all my needs according to his glorious riches. In Christ Jesus, Paul has no doubt that God will give him what he needs to make up for this debt. But let me remind you, there's kind of a turn that Paul does here. And it kind of moves it out of the financial world into the spiritual world when he says this. He says, I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, well, I think what Paul's saying is this, that Philemon, you have a debt to me. You have a debt to me because God, by his own grace, used me as an instrument to save you. That I was the one that introduced you to the gospel. I begot you in the gospel. I'm your spiritual father. All that you enjoy in the Christian life, it's because it has come through me. Now, Paul's point is not to play the role of savior. Paul's point is simply to kind of wake up Philemon. He's struggling. Paul thinks he may struggle with forgiveness. Well, let me remind you. You had a debt that was uncalculable. And God has forgiven you in Christ. Can you not forgive the debt of this servant? Can you not forgive his debt? Can you not walk in a right relationship with him? Well, you know, when you talk about forgiveness, there is cost to pay on a lot of levels, right? So the one, if you're here today and you've been wounded by someone and you're, you're just still mulling over the sin that has been brought against you and you feel as a victim, you feel like you've been sinned against, well, to forgive, it does cost you. There's no doubt. You have to kind of take it on the chin, as it were. You, you have kind of have to consider that there may be an emotional or spiritual cost that you bear. 
It shouldn't surprise us, right? When we sin against somebody else, there's going to be a cost. I mean, we know that. I mean, sin is always creating a cost. It costs God plenty, as it were, to forgive us. The one cost that's often hidden, though, that I'm asking you, if you're wounded here, I'm asking you to bear, and that is humility. It's a cost of humbling yourself to receive the restitution of another person. This is harder than you think. Because to humble yourself and to receive the repentance of one who has sinned against you is challenging. You know why? Because to be sinned against puts you in a position of power. You have power over them. They've done something wrong and you haven't. And you have a certain degree of power over them. It can be sort of weaponry. I mean, you can hold it against them. There's a sort of righteousness that you have. They are unrighteous. You are righteous. It kind of gives you that divine feeling of, I'm now the judge. I'm now sitting down watching these people who have sinned against me. It's a hard thing to let that right go. It's a hard thing to let it go and say, no longer will I hold this against you. Particularly in marriages, in our marriages here. You know, it, one sins against the other. It is easy to work that for your benefit for as long as you can. And, and Paul's saying, no, no, no. To walk in forgiveness that reconciles, you have to let that one go. You cannot keep bringing it up. You can't go historical, not hysterical. You may be hysterical, but historical is when you keep bringing it up week after week. But you remember you did that. Remember you did that. There's a letting go of that. But there's also a cost. Don't, don't miss the fact that there's a cost to the one who did the wounding. So if you're here today and you have brought sin into somebody's life, you have sinned against somebody, like Philemon. Philemon had a cost. He had to march himself back to Colossae. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know if he'd be arrested, if he'd be killed, if he'd be rejected. He didn't know what would happen. But he knew he had to reconcile, and so he went back. And so for you, if you are here and you're thinking of a sin that perhaps you've committed against a friend, a, a sister, a brother in the Lord, and you need to be reconciled to them, that you just need to, that you have to humble yourself as well. Why? Because, you know, in your mind, you're always trying to think, yeah, but this happened, and, and, but, but if this wouldn't have happened, well, it was a bad day at the office, and well, I was not feeling very good. You have all these excuses. You just got to say, I sinned against you because I was selfish in that moment. And I'm sorry, I am to blame. I am at fault. Would you please forgive me? It's a hard thing to do. You just want to slip a butt in there, or you want to slip maybe if things were different. You want to slip something in there just to mitigate just a little bit your guilt. You just have to say, I did it. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? You know, Frederick Putner writes on forgiveness, he says this, he says, to forgive somebody is to say, one way or another, you've done something unspeakable, and by all rights I should call it quits between us. Both my pride and my principles demand no less. However, although I make no guarantees that I will be able to forget what you've done, and though we may both carry the scars for life, I refuse to let it stand between us. I still want you for my friend. To accept forgiveness means to admit that you've done something unspeakable that needs to be forgiven. And thus both parties must swallow the same thing, their pride. So that's the cost. The cost is the pride, if you can believe it. That's, I think, often the highest cost. But there's another cost. 
And that is the cost that Paul paid, right? The peacemaking cost. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There's a cost to you as a peacemaker. So in other words, when there's conflict within the church or within the family, normally we go to somebody else, not the one that we've offended, and we usually talk to them about it. Either we try to seek spiritual counsel, or we use them as a sounding board, or we may just gossip about it. But when you're one of those that gets to hear about the conflict, what will you do? Because there's a cost that's being asked of you. Will you get involved? Because there's a cost of time, there's a cost of convenience, there's a cost of, there's a cost of you might be drawn into waters that are deeper than you can handle. There's a cost that if you challenge the one speaking to you, it may blow back on you. Aren't you supporting me? Do you love them more than me? And you start getting those lines, and you're only trying to bring a gospel reflection to them. There's a cost. So what do you do when you hear about the conflict within your family or within the friendships? What do you do? Do you, do you immediately just go silent to avoid any conflict? Do you fan the flame? You're right. You should be angry. Or do you try to bring a gospel word? to bring about reconciliation. How do you handle that? What do you do? Because there's a cost, a real cost in that. And remember this, though, there's also a cost in doing nothing. There is a cost there as well. You know, there is giving the devil a foothold in the relationship. There's a cost of bitterness. There's the cost of hindering your own relationship with God. So, so mind you, there is a cost either way. I would rather pay the cost that advances reconciliation then pay the cost that will just hinder it. Okay, the third aspect of forgiveness that we see in this text, a gospel forgiveness, is that it does bring refreshment. And this is really good news. This is really, when you consider the cost, I'm really glad Paul followed it with this. There's a refreshment there. Look at me when he says, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you, or from usefulness for you. Now remember the play on words last week on Onesimus. Onesimus means useful, right? And so he says, hey, Onesimus, useful, who once was useless, is now useful. Well, now Paul plays, plays on that same word, and he says, hey, brother, I, I, I want some benefit. I want some usefulness from you in the Lord. He wants, he wants to be refreshed, he says. Do you see that? Refresh my heart in Christ. The word refreshed was used as, you know, when armies finally stop marching, and they get to sit down, and they get to eat, and they get to drink. It's kind of restorative time for their bodies, and really their bodies and their souls. And Paul's saying, would you refresh me? Philemon, would you refresh me? In other words, would you give me the joy of forgiving Onesimus? Would you give me the joy and the satisfaction of reconciling two brothers, two spiritual sons? Would you refresh my soul by reconciling and loving one another? I think there's even more. And Paul's confident. You can tell Paul's confident that he will do it. Why? Because he says it in the very next line. He says, I'm confident of your obedience, knowing that you'll do even more than I ask. I think Paul was asking Philemon to refresh his soul by not just forgiving him, not just taking him back in, but setting him free. And not just setting him free, but setting him free to then be a minister with Paul of the gospel message. Because Paul had said how useful he was in ministry. He would become like a younger Timothy. Refresh my soul. Give me the satisfaction. Let me, let me see the power of the gospel at work, is what he was saying. I want to see the gospel work by having two people who should be at enmity with one another, enjoy one another. 
I, I, I love. I'll tell you, you want to know what fills my tank? What fills my tank is people reconciling. What fills my tank is this idea of when people are at odds over a significant issue, but they both lay down their rights and they both reconcile for the glory of God. That refreshes my soul. I mean, that for me just fills my tank to see the power of the gospel at work. And I've seen that in many of your lives. I've seen many of you go up and you've, you've brought something to me and I've encouraged you in a certain direction and you've followed it and you've done it. And things have gotten better. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's more of a it's a longer road to reconciliation. But I'll tell you, there, there is nothing more joyful in ministry. There's nothing more refreshing to know that the people are walking in harmony with one another. It's really encouraging for the church, isn't it? I, I mean, it's kind of a godly challenge to us, wouldn't you say, uh, that, that Paul is asking for some profit in this? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever been involved in a conflict? where you would have the ability to say this to the person. Could you consider reconciling even for the joy of the community? In other words, I, I know that you're hurt, and I respect that, and I appreciate that, and I want to walk with you. But would you be willing to forgive for the sake of my joy and for the sake of the church? Could you ever see doing that? That's what Paul's doing. It's like me saying, hey, I want some profit from you, and I would like you to reconcile with them for our joy and the health of the community of Christ Covenant Church. Would you do that? Or could you even see, like Paul did, you know, Paul is encouraging Philemon over the grace that he sees, and he's saying, I've seen grace in your life, now go walk in it by reconciling. Or at least could you warn the person? If the Christian says, I'm not going to forgive them, I can't forgive them again. Can you at least warn them and say, well, let me tell you something. If you don't want to walk in that, then, then you're going to leave an awkwardness in our body. We're all going to suffer. We're all going to bear some degree of the pain that you're feeling. Hey, you, you all know it. I mean, you've been in, to enough family functions around the holidays where the unreconciled conflicts make their presence known, and there's an awkwardness, there is, an, there is just an uncomfortableness over, yeah, they've had a fight a few years ago. And you know, it just hasn't reconciled. And, and, and the conversation, it's always the elephant in the room. You know, it's just, well, we can't talk about that. Don't go there over dinner. Perhaps you've coached your kids that way. Don't ask about that, because that's just going to bring everything up again. And so we as Christians can say, refresh my heart in Christ. Please go to the brother and reconcile with them today. Do it today. So that's a... The forgiveness, gospel forgiveness, brings refreshment, brings health and healing to the body. And then last, uh, this gospel forgiveness, fourth, is uh, involving the community. It's involving the community. So first, gospel forgiveness results in restored relationships. It does embrace a cost. Thirdly, it does bring refreshment. And then fourth, it's done in the community. Now look at where I get that from. Look in verse 22. Paul says, and one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you. Now, this is funny, because I always wondered, it's, it's like an, is this like the precursor to Airbnb? Or what, is he looking for a little R&R? Why is Paul wanting a guest room? Well, you know what I think he's doing? I think he's putting pressure on Philemon. I think he's saying to Philemon, listen, I am coming up to see you, and I want to see how the thing goes. I'm coming up, and I'm going to see how you treat Onesimus. There's an accountability there for Philemon. He needs that accountability. There's also a comfort to Onesimus, isn't there? 
I mean, if you were going into what seems like the den of lions, or could be, to know Paul saying, I'm going to be right behind you. I mean, there would be encouragement. But there's more than that. Do you remember how Paul addressed the letter? When he addressed the letter, he addressed it to Philemon and Aphia and Archippus and to the church at your house, in Philemon's house. So the, the, the letter is public. He's drawing in the community to help in the reconciliation. He uses the word, he uses the, um, the plural form in the first couple of verses. He goes totally singular in the body of the letter when he's addressing Philemon, and then he goes plural again at the end of the letter. And that's why I think he's mentioning all these people, Epaphras and Aristarchus and, and uh, Luke and uh, even Demas, who would later fall away from the faith. He's bringing all these people to bear, saying, Philemon, we're doing this as a community. We need to help you. Now, we, we don't know, of course, the letter would not detail what happened. But most scholarship would say that, yes, they did reconcile. Why? Why do I say that? Well, I think because the letter wouldn't be around if they didn't. I mean, the fact that the letter continued to provide help and hope for the church must mean that it probably worked. Not only that, but there's an inscription found in Laodicea, a town a stone's throw away from Colossae, that had the giving of thanks to a man named Philemon for his manumission or for his freedom from slavery. So there's even a, a piece of inscription, a, I don't know what it was inscribed upon, but a document giving thanks. So for the Christian here, if you're a Christian, you know, I hope you know, I hope you know that you will be in an ongoing need to both extend forgiveness and to seek it. Because in this world, we will struggle with sin. We will always be in that ongoing need. Are you easy to entreat, to forgive? Are you flexible? Are you willing for someone to come up and engage you to help you walk in reconciliation with other people? Is that something that you would be open to? Are you cultivating relationships right now that will help form a segue to be able to bring a word to bear? Are you open to that? A lot of us don't like that. We don't like that at all. And I would encourage you to pray for that. You know, I was reading through the Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision is a collection of Puritan prayers edited by a man by the name of Bennett. It's a great book of prayers. I think we have them out in the bookstall out there. It's a great series of Puritan prayers put together. And one of them I just read about three days ago called Reproofs. Reproofs. And here's what, here's what the Puritan prays. Oh, merciful God, when I hear of disagreeable things among Christians, it brings an additional weight and burden on my spirit. I come to thee in my distress and make lamentable complaint. Teach me how to take reproofs from friends. Even though I do not think I deserve them, use them to make me tenderly afraid of sin. Use them to make more jealous over others, more concerned to keep my heart and life unblameable. Cause them to help me reflect on my want of spirituality. Cause them to help me abhor my sin and to look upon myself as unworthy. Make them beneficial to my soul. Give me such vivacity and religion that I may be able to take all reproofs from other men as from your hands and glorify you for them from a sense of your beneficent love and my need to have my pride destroyed. Could you pray that with me? 
Could we pray that he would humble us so that we could see reproofs as a gift of God and not a reason to get our back all bowed up? And then to the church as well. You know, I, I think there's a word for us. First, what do we do? How does the community actually facilitate this kind of forgiveness? How did Paul expect these Colossians, because remember now, the, the, the church that was in Philemon's house was the Colossian church, so, so how would they help in reconciliation? Well, number one, they would at least be introspective, and we would want to seek to, um, <clears throat> as Paul said in Acts 24, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So do you practice introspection? Do you look at your life? In the morning, for example, will you stop and often think, how did I handle my good friends this past day or two? How have I handled my marriage? Have I spoken with harsh words? Have I been deceitful? Have I been unkind? Do I need to reconcile? Do I need to seek their forgiveness? You know, self-confrontation is so much easier as opposed to you having to be confronted. And so do I practice that? Do you practice that as a Christian? Because the assumption is that you're going to sin and be sinned against. Therefore, this introspection, I would think, would be quite helpful for you. But then another way that we, the church, can be involved is to pray. That's what Paul does in the last verse there in 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul's, this isn't a throwaway. This isn't a sincerely at the end of a letter. Paul is praying that God's grace would be so manifest in this church that we would have the courage and the boldness to walk in truth with one another. Can we pray that for one another? I mean, can we ask God, God, would you grant to this church a spirit of unity and courage to walk in truth and kindness with one another? If you're, if you're a single person here, can you pray for the harmony in the marriages that are in this church? And if you're married here, can you pray for the singles that they would walk in harmony in their relationships and to the marriages that they may be called that they would enjoy harmony? Can we pray those of us who don't have children or have children out of the house? We know what it's like parenting. Can we pray for those parents with younger children that they would have harmony in their house and that they would deal with sin and reconciliation in a godly way? Can we pray that way? Can I ask you, uh, just as a matter of practice, to pray regularly for one another in this church? Particularly as it speaks to the need for reconciliation and harmony in our relationships. Because we are, we are the alternative to the world. And if we don't act in an alternative way, then what does the world have? If nothing. This vision of God to be displayed through the colony of heaven, his church, it just goes dark. And we give them no vision of God's glory. So let's walk in this. So we've spent three weeks on the nature of forgiveness. And it's perfectly timed around the holidays by God's providence. So, so let's take a minute now and just ask God for grace that we would reconcile rightly. And if there is someone here uh, and in your mind, because I know you've been thinking about yourself at this moment, not other people, and how much they need this sermon, uh, but, but would you maybe take this next few minutes, <clears throat> these next few moments, and think about how you can walk this out. We don't want to be like the man who looks at himself in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. We want to be the one who hears the word and, and does the word. And then I'll pray for us in a moment. <clears throat>